Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Read with your money. Only on Money FM 89.3. You're reading with me, Michelle Martin. Servitude, love, freedom, fate. They're all themes of my book in focus for you today. A book of fiction built on an economic system associated with a Southern China practice where poor young women historically were sold or transferred for domestic service in return for food or shelter. So it was a system, centuries old really, that allowed poor families to sell their unwanted daughters to wealthy households to be used as domestic servants, and the women could later regain their freedom through marriage at around the age of 18. So we travel back in time to learn of the Mui Sai, or the fate of little sisters. Through the pages of author Eva Wong Nava's debut work of historical fiction meant for young adults. The book is titled The House of Little Sisters. Good morning, Eva. Good morning, Michelle. Great of you to join us. Congratulations on your book. For the listener who hasn't picked it up yet, but they really must, can you share with us briefly what the book is all about? Sure. Thank you for having me. So the book is really a supernatural expose of a past system that still has a tight grip on contemporary Singapore and Malaysia. It is set in the 1930s in British Malaya. So that's the setting for the book. Mm-hmm. And that's in synopsis or, you know, in a kind of an elevator pitch, what the book is about. Why did you choose to include a supernatural element? I mean, what, what is frightening in this book? Well, I think it's supernatural because there are ghosts or there is a ghost that appears to the protagonist. The protagonist is named Lin Mei Mei and a ghost appears to her and this ghost shows Lin Mei Mei what happened to her in the house of the eminent Mr. Lee. Right. So I, th- I thought what was really frightening was this whole idea of the Muisai. I mean, I have to say, I didn't know what that meant in Cantonese. Mm. And that means little younger sister. And to hear there was a whole economic system built around this idea of, you know, essentially trafficking. That to mm. me was, was absolutely frightening. Now, tell us a little bit about the character, the generic category of Muisai. And were they very common here in Singapore back in our past? It was a very common, uh, it was, I mean, the trading of these Muay Thai or little girls was very prevalent. I mean, as I said, uh, as you had said earlier, it, it's actually a, a practice that British Malaya or the Chinese diaspora mm-hmm. had imported from China when they left China. This is one of the practices or habits that they had brought with them. Muay Thai also existed in Australia and in San Francisco. I mean, my research took me there, but I chose to focus on the Muay Thai in British Malaya because I am from Singapore mm-hmm. and I felt that history is probably lesser known. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so interesting to hear wherever there was sort of Chinese migration, even places like San Francisco, the system oh. went with them. Yeah, basically. Yes. So interesting. So why do you say on the back of the book that these figures are both helpless and powerful? Great question. Because I think as women, we are both, you know, we have we are helpless, we're also powerful. And in those days, in 1930s, girls didn't know their power. They were helpless because they were traded. Mm. And basically what happens is that, you know, they didn't know their attraction, right? And their attraction was mainly because they're, they're girls. They were looked at as sexual objects and things to be traded. And I felt that 
I mean, it's a bit of a conundrum, isn't it, to be powerful and to also be helpless. They were helpless because they couldn't get out of a system that traded them, I suppose, that they were in the middle of. Mm. And those who didn't know their power found a way to get out. But these were very rare girls, you know. And, you know, the book entails what that power is. It's a knowledge. In the story, we have actually a matriarchal figure Mm -hmm. who teaches Lin Mei Mei what to do. Right. Wonderful. So she, you know, it's very hard to think of how can you emancipate yourself when you're sold into servitude. Mm. But in your book, you give her a female character who's sort of a mentor. Mm Mm-hmm. That's right. Who helps her along. Right. Wonderful. Yeah. Can you help us understand the context of the British administration and how they confronted the Muay Thai problem? So this ordinance was called the Muay Thai Ordinance of 1932. It was a mm. piece of legislation that was written by the British administration to legalize the status of these little girls. Mm. And it obliged households that owned these little girls to register and to pay them a wage. So this legal act was really part of the British government moved to abolish slavery in their colonies. Mm-hmm. And it actually started in 1833, the Slavery Abolition Act. And it was passed in Parliament and came into effect in 1834. And this was meant to spread throughout all their colonies. But as you can see, the ordinance didn't come about until 1932. Mm-hmm. That's because, you know, like in places like British Malaya or Hong Kong, Muay Thai was also very prevalent in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. It was because the British, as we know, had also a non-interventionist policy. They didn't want to really intervene with what's going on amongst, you know, the locals, right? They were there to just trade, to put it in a sort of a nutshell. So there was a huge problem because, and the British actually called it the Muay Thai problem, because it was hard to define what a Muay Thai was, being, mm. it, it being a Cantonese term, and it also being it also means you know little daughter. Mm. And so what happens in some households was that the master of the house would say, "Oh, she's my daughter. Right. I don't need to pay her a wage. You know, I've adopted her." So it was that um, very kind of grey area or very difficult to define what a Muay Thai was that caused this problem of them being traded. In terms of emancipation, was marriage the only way out or largely the only way out? In those days, probably yes, because, Mm. you know, these girls had no income of their own. They literally went from father's house. Father would have sold them to some eminent person's house. And that household, usually during the sale, there'll be a negotiation, right? And the father may say, okay, you know, when they're 18, you've got to marry them off. Usually that's the case, but sometimes that doesn't happen or didn't happen. I guess the mistress of the house was obliged to say, find a suitable husband for Mm -hmm. the girl when she turns 18. Mm -hmm. So it's basically, again, another sort of sale, isn't it? Passing her onto another house, another man. She would be this man's wife and servant. Eva Wong-Nava is my guest. She's the author of The House of Little Sisters. Eva, this is meant for young adults. How did you ensure that, you know, the history wouldn't be overwhelming and really the love story at the heart of things or the emotions at the heart of this story will be communicated to your audience? Well, it is a love story. So there are chapters where we see Libbeme and Hassan Muhammad, you know, chatting and being friends. And she has a crush on him Mm. and he has a crush on her. Of course, in those days, they don't use the word crush. (laughs) And, you know, and they're just chatting and getting to know each other secretly because a relationship like that in 1930s is really not allowed. 
right? So, so it's for young adults because there are these two central characters in there and the history is seen through their eyes. Mm. And how did I make it not overwhelming? I think that was your question. Mm. It's a story, like any story, like any love story, like any YA novel, except that this is based on, it's fictional, but it's based on bits of history. Yeah, I love asking authors of historical fiction when they decide to leave the research behind and then start writing. Now, is that something that you did concurrently did, or did you have to have like a hard stop on the researching and say, OK, right now I'm just going to go with what I imagine? I think it's both. There is a balance of both. I was interested in the master and servant relationship Uh. in British Malaya or in Singapore, Mm -hmm. you know, contemporary Singapore. And when I came to live here in 2013, I again, I left and I came back to live again in 2013. I was very fascinated by the reliance in the society on domestic helpers. And I was thinking, why are domestic helpers primarily women? Mm. And I was very interested in that because I had a helper when I lived in Paris and he was a man. Mm. He was my manny. He looked after my children for me. Mm. And when I came back to Singapore from France to live in Singapore again, I looked and I thought, oh, why only women? And that kind of triggered a curiosity in me. Mm. And that research started based on that. And Uh the more I dug the more I realized that there was a historical link to this. And I linked it to the Muay Thai because historically, they were all servant girls. Although there were servant boys and men, but the domestic helpers were mainly women. Interesting to hear about our historical root of this whole practice of domestic servitude and femininity. Um, Can you describe some of the ways that you chose to weave Southeast Asian folklore and Chinese fairy tales and even folk religion with history and magical realism? That's a lot in the pot. Yeah, definitely a lot in the pot. I love magic realism as a voice, as a genre in writing. So magic realism is done very well by Latin American writers such as Isabel Allende, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I just love the way it's written, how magic and realism Mm. combines to become a story or in storytelling. Mm. And I wrote in that literary voice because... I felt that as Southeast Asians, we live in this magic realist world anyway. Gods can talk, ghosts of our ancestors haunt us perennially during the Ghost Festival. We have deities that bestow us with boons and, you know, or not. And we were surrounded by this. We have Hantus and Pontiana, the kitchen god, for example. If you look at the kitchen god, the Chinese practice of praying to the kitchen god before the Chinese New Year. We can see the kitchen god as our bona fide spiritual whistleblower. I mean, he's supposed to take the news back to the Jade Emperor, whether the family has behaved or not. And if the family has behaved, they get blessed during the Chinese New Year. So I felt all these were, were such great elements in storytelling. And Hassan and Muhammad and Limemi's relationship was inspired by the ancient Chinese fairy tale of the weaver girl and the cowherd. Oh. Which, and the weaver girl and the cowherd are actually two stars in the celestial heavens. They're two star-crossed lovers and they only meet once a year. And they meet when a tittering of magpies build a bridge that unites them. And this only happens once a year. And the tittering of magpies is actually the Milky Way. So I felt that I would like to kind of retell that. Oh, well, it sounds like a beautiful tapestry. We wish you all the best with your debut work of historical fiction, Eva. Thanks for joining us. 
Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for having me. She's Eva Wong Nava, and the book that we're reading today is The House of Little Sisters. This is Read. I'm Michelle Martin. Thank you so much for your company. Read with your money only on Money FM 89.3. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A W E D I O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.